Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and I'd like to introduce Robert Burleson, our communications manager. Hello, everyone, and it's my pleasure to introduce Kat Edmonds, who works as a nurse practitioner in the leukemia program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, located in Boston. Kat's been a nurse practitioner for eight years, working with leukemia patients for that entire length of time. Prior to that, she worked as an oncology nurse for five years. Kat graduated from New York University with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing and obtained her master's degree at the Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions. She worked there at uh, MGH, as it's known, and subsequently at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Center and then moved over to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. We're pleased to have Kat on the line with us today to talk about what she does on a daily basis and her advice for bone marrow failure and leukemia patients, no matter who they are or where they are. So with that, Kat, let's get started. Um, I guess I'd like to ask a general question first. When a patient is first diagnosed with MDS or a bone marrow failure condition, what do you observe as their their first greatest reaction or greatest worry? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think that's a great question. I think most patients immediately think of how is this diagnosis going to change my life and the lives of the people that I love? What does this look like? Am I going to have to stop working? Is this going to affect my family? How is this going to affect my day to day? Okay, so it's just immediate concerns about themselves and their uh, family members and just their uh, the pattern of their life, really? Yes. Okay. Then to follow that on, what are the typical options that are given to patients when you and uh, your team explain what their options are, uh, what are some of them, and do they readily understand them? I know mm-hmm. they'll probably immediately go do some internet research and are encouraged to, but mm-hmm. when it comes to options and how they grasp and understand the options, what have you observed? So the only cure for MDS is a bone marrow transplant, and there are um, various ways to kind of get to that transplant point. Some people can go directly to a bone marrow transplant That depends if they have lower risk disease, which is based on an MDS scoring system called the IPSS. Those who have higher risk disease need to get some kind of treatment, likely chemotherapy, before they can proceed to a bone marrow transplant. Other patients aren't eligible for a bone marrow transplant, be it that they may be too old, which is very common in MDS, or they have some other medical problems that prohibits them from going to bone marrow transplant. In those cases, we offer those patients supportive care, such as giving transfusions, giving some antibiotics to prevent infection, or giving some growth factors to help their body make some red blood cells and platelets. And other times, we can still give chemotherapy to patients who aren't eligible for a bone marrow transplant, but it's more of a palliative intent. In other words, to prolong their life, but not necessarily to cure them. 
Okay, thank you for that for that explanation. Um, when these are explained, do you find that they understand uh, most of what you're talking about, or is it to an extent uh, mystifying and you need to explain? For, they ask for further explanation. Absolutely, I think a hundred percent of the time they ask for further information. I think the first time meeting. Um, the doctor, the nurse practitioner, and the team and hearing the diagnosis of MDS, while we go through everything from diagnosis to treatment, I think you can really only take in, you know, I, I have this bone marrow failure problem. Again, how is this going to affect me and my loved ones? What does this mean for my life? So it takes a lot of meetings to really understand uh, what bone marrow failure MDS is and what the treatments will entail. Okay. Uh, another question that follows on, I think, from this is: Do you what kind of tools are what kind of tools can patients use to help them make the best decisions uh, for themselves? Just you may counsel them to look at external websites mm-hmm. or just other mm-hmm. sources of valid uh, vetted uh, information, even background information. Um, do you steer them in any particular direction? Sure. I always tell patients not to Google too much because there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. There's so many different types of MDS now. And like we briefly mentioned, the scoring system. And so one person's picture often doesn't exactly meet another person's picture. So doing some Googling can lead to misinformation. I always encourage patients to stop and ask me questions when they don't understand something. Um, but certainly your organization's website is wonderful. The Aplastic Anemia MDS International Foundation is wonderful. The American Cancer Society has a fabulous website and also the institute where the patient is being treated, um, often has a lot of information on their website as well. And it's great to network with people. Um, you'd be surprised how common it is and just talking with other people who have gone through it. You know, even though they're not getting the same exact treatment, they're still going through it and there are still similarities um, in their diagnosis and experience. And so I do encourage patients to take advantage of some support groups that their institution may have to offer. So you're saying here that they may meet other patients who may be on a slightly different track, but they still have enough in common that they can discuss and learn from each other. Exactly. And I think it it helps fit caregivers as well to talk to other caregivers going through it. Um, I think it's a really beneficial relationship when it can happen. That's that's really interesting, Kat. But another idea that just because I'm not as experienced as you are in this field, uh, but I was wondering, I've heard a lot about genetic testing of the MDS and that there's all different types of MDS. Is genetic testing routine now, or does do you have to initiate that to make sure that it's done of your MDS diagnosis? It's a good question. It should be routine. Um, there are rare cases when patients have come to us with an MDS diagnosis and it hasn't been done. But in order to do the risk scoring to say if somebody has low, intermediate, or high-risk MDS, we need that genetic testing information. So that has to be done to give patients an accurate prognosis. And um, 
and treatment plan. We don't know how to treat these these patients if we don't know if they're low, intermediate, or high-risk MDS. Thanks. You mentioned a moment ago about the different types of treatments they might get. There can be supportive care and, uh, you know, treatment with certain drugs and, of course, uh, chemotherapy uh, before a uh, bone marrow uh, transplant, stem cell transplant. Can you talk a little bit about side effects? Uh, do you, what, what they might experience, and it's different for everyone and could be different mm-hmm. side effects at different degrees for different patients. How do you counsel them on what they might expect and how to uh, do the best they can coping with side effects of treatment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, not looking at bone marrow transplant, just looking at the chemotherapy piece, um, side effects. Many people have fatigue such that they have the desire to want to do things around the house. They have the desire to want to, you know, do things with their children, but they just don't have the energy to. They find themselves having to stay on the sofa most of the day or resting. So fatigue is very common. Also infections are very common because the chemotherapy farther lowers the blood counts. And um, if you have a low white blood cell count, you're not able to fight off common infections that you or I would be able to fight off. And so sometimes they may have to go in the hospital if they have an infection because they'll need intravenous antibiotics to help their um, low immune system fight off the infection. Also, bleeding. You could have nosebleeds, some GI bleeding as a result of the treatment because the treatment can leave somebody's platelets low and platelets are the blood cells that help your blood clot to help you stop bleeding. So bleeding problems is very common. Also nausea and anorexia from the chemotherapy. A lot of people will have some weight loss and just lack of appetite. They don't feel like eating. Nothing is appealing to them. So some side effects are just due to what you would expect from having certain low blood cell counts and others yes. more from just the, the, the treatment, the chemotherapy. Correct. Mm-hmm. Then also, also going back to something you mentioned a short time ago, I'd like to shift the discussion over to caregivers and how they're involved, mm-hmm. uh, how they can help, and then help for the caregiver as well. Do you, in your uh, work, daily work, do you routinely interact with caregivers? Absolutely. We always encourage patients to bring their caregiver with them if possible. Um, Number one, because it's often a long day in the clinic. You have to drive into clinic, get your blood work done, see your healthcare provider, and then get your chemotherapy and or any transfusion. So it's a long day. Having somebody there to to do the driving and to get you something to eat midday is really important. Also important to have a caregiver there for when you meet with your healthcare team. It's just another set of ears and somebody else to think of questions that they may have. So whenever possible, I always think it's great to bring your caregiver um, or somebody close to you with you to all of your appointments. Because they're pretty much involved from start to finish, uh, the whole process of the, the treatment center and the things that go on. And then if uh, whether it's a living caregiver or a husband or wife, uh, just right. help around the house. Is there any right. advice you'd give to caregivers just 
uh, directly mm-hmm. about because some of them yeah. may be a little overwhelmed. They're in this situation they've never been in before. What would you say to them? Absolutely. I mean, having just support from somebody else who's in a caregiver position, somebody who can relate and empathize with what you're going through because it's very difficult. You want to help your loved one. But sometimes and oftentimes you feel very helpless because they don't feel like eating the food that you're making them or they get an infection, even though you've washed your hands and you've kept them away from anybody who may be sick. And so oftentimes I think caregivers feel feel helpless and that can be really difficult. And so talking to somebody who is in the same position, I feel like can be very helpful. And again, establishing a relationship with the healthcare team so that you feel a part of what's going on and you're able to ask questions that you may have um, and just feeling supported by everybody around you is very important for caregivers. Is it going too far to say that the caregiver kind of is part of the healthcare team? I mean, they're really not. No, I, I think that's great. I mean, I a lot of times much of the history I get um, is from the caregiver because patients will often say, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing pretty good. But then somebody's caregiver says, well, actually, you know, he hasn't had anything to eat in two days and he's been vomiting. <laughs> um, and so we often get a really good history, an honest history from the caregiver. All right, then that's how the caregiver can help. One thing we always ask is if you wanted, if there were one thing that's the most important point um, uh, that you'd like to make, uh, the thing you would want most newly diagnosed MDS patients in this case mm-hmm. to know, what would you tell them? Mm-hmm. I would say don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to seek a second opinion because there are so many clinical trials out there for new therapies for people with MDS. Um, again, you want to make sure you've had all of your genetic testing done and uh, molecular testing is very popular now. And so you want to make sure that um, somebody has all the information they need to about you in order to diagnose and treat you the best that they can. Uh, one thing really quick, you mentioned genetic testing and molecular yeah. testing. Yeah. Is, can you tell us a little bit if, if there's a real difference what that is? Yeah, so um, genetic testing is really looking at the chromosomes or the karyotype, and molecular testing is known as next-generation sequencing. Um, And so there are a lot of molecular mutations, and we're finding more and more every day. And uh, that can sometimes lead us to more targeted therapies for certain types of MDS or make you eligible for a certain type of clinical trial. So that's like personalized medicine. Yes. I'd like to go back to the idea of a second opinion. Yes. Um, You know, I think some people are scared they're going to offend their doctor if they go out for a second opinion. Can you you tell me about how Mm -hmm. you walk a patient through the process of getting a second opinion? Sure. I mean, oftentimes at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, we are the second opinion. Um, but we say, we want you to be comfortable with the care you're getting. We will communicate with, you know, what other doctor you are seeing. Some people like to get treated closer to home in the community and then come to a larger academic center, maybe every couple months just to check in. And that's great. And we encourage that. And we say, we will communicate with your community provider. We want you to get the, the best care possible. One thing that also occurred to me, uh, Kat, was that, um, when it comes to the second opinions, uh, patients, or even if I were a patient, if you come to a, a, a 
treatment center, such as where you are, some of the world's experts are there. And they may, their first encounter may be with one of the world's experts, but they still may feel, I still want a second opinion, but should I really do it if I'm already seeing an expert in the field? And there may be some trepidation about doing that, but still it's something they want to follow on. Uh, What would you say there to that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would say follow your heart. If you have the resources to go to another large academic center for another second opinion, I would say absolutely, because certainly at our institute, we have different different clinical trials available than um, other larger institutes may have. And we may think we're the best, but, um, you know, some patients may feel like it just doesn't feel right here. And so, again, you should just get treated where you feel most comfortable. Okay. Well, that's, that's really good. Uh, that, I, I have one more question, oh, if I could. Please, please. Um, sure. You were t- you mentioned a little bit about clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Are do most healthcare teams, uh, um, nurse navigators, and nurse practitioners who who work who are in the oncology field, do they know how to get a patient connected with a clinical trial or is there something that the patient should be doing to connect with the, to see if they're eligible for a clinical trial? Yeah, I would say most um, nurse navigators and other members of the team should be aware of clinical trials that are ongoing, but patients could also um, look online Um and they, if they're interested in a clinical trial, they can contact, they can get the contact information for the clinical trial team and contact them directly. It does seem to go both ways. In fact, there's one uh, patient I know who uh, wasn't real happy with some of the advice, and he just called up NIH himself mm-hmm. and then got into yes. it. He was qualified, got into yes. a trial that way. Yes. So there's, uh, it really works both ways. You, The patients need to be aware and proactive, but still Absolutely. their treatment team can help quite a bit as and then as far as a second opinion you're used to that and it's just a routine part of treatment in some cases absolutely mm-hmm. well I'd like to thank you for your time Kat oh, uh, thank you really enjoyed speaking with you we've covered a lot in a fairly short amount of time just good basic advice for newly diagnosed patients to get an idea of what happens up there uh, on the floor where you work and what they might expect if uh, something like this comes along. So again, thanks for everything that you've, for everything you've spoken to us about. And now back over to you, Tricia. Thanks so much, Kat. We, uh, we appreciate it. Um, thanks also, um, Bob, for uh, you leading our discussion today. Remember that the AAMDSIF helpline is here for all patients and caregivers at 800-747-2820, option two, or email help at aamds.org. To connect with our peer support network, community support groups, and online communities, you can call that number or you can find us on the web at aamds.org. We'll be here next time covering both general and specific topics to assist patients and families coping with bone marrow failure diseases. So we'll see you next time. So long.